Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Samuel Hahnemann. Happy birthday to you. Hello, homies. Yes, we are celebrating the birthday of Samuel Hahnemann, the founder of homeopathy, who was born on the 10th of April, 1755. Now, I wanted to share with you a little bit about the history of Samuel. I am no expert on it at all. I did try to get us on some experts, but with the Joint American Homeopathic Conference at the end of April, and also just had Homeo Summit, uh, all the people that are experts in this field are very much occupied. So <laughs> I have found this great book called Samuel Hahnemann, the founder of homeopathic medicine, and it is by the author Trevor M. Cook. And I'll pop this in the show notes and I will be reading some bits from this book for you. So here we go. In the spring of 1755, a second son was born to Christian Gottfried and Joanna Christian Hahnemann of Mason in southeast Germany. He was born shortly before midnight on Thursday, 10 April, and was given the names Christian Frederick Samuel. To avoid confusion with his father's first name, the boy became simply known as Samuel Hahnemann. So close to midnight was his birth, some doubt remains as to the exact date, for the church register recorded 11 April. The omission of the second H in the Hahnemann in the entry casts some doubt on the accuracy of the registrar, but the final arbiter must be Samuel Hahnemann himself who celebrated his birthday on 10 April throughout his lifetime. The infant Samuel was not particularly robust, which may be inferred from his unusually early christening, recorded in the same church register as his birth on 13 April 1755, probably necessitated by a short life expectancy. Samuel's mother, Joanna, or probably Johanna, married Christian Hardeman on 2 November 1750 in Kockenbroda. Oh, I'm very sorry for all the German listeners. I'm probably completely butchering the name. <laughs> a suburb of Dresden where her father was stationed as a quartermaster captain. The house where Samuel was born was purchased by his father two years earlier in 1753 after Johanna gave birth to Samuel's elder sister, Charlotte Gerharduna. It was a modest three-storied house half a mile to the south of the town centre. It was here that young Samuel would live until he was 20 years old. Samuel's paternal grandfather, his father and his uncle, Christian August, were all artists. Samuel's brief autobiography records that his father had a small book published on painting in watercolours. Although it was clear from the beginning that young Samuel would not follow in the family tradition and would develop his aptitude for science and medicine, there is evidence to suggest that he had a certain artistic talent. He would sometimes adorn his letters and student papers with drawings and sketches, and his sense of humour was apparent when he signed his name in the form of an accurate drawing of a cock, which with the suffix Mann. Hahn is the German word for cock, and it's actually the same in my na native language Afrikaans. Hahn actually means rooster. So later in life, his technical drawings confirmed his ability. Records of Samuel's boyhood are somewhat sparse. He was a thin, physically delicate, fair-haired boy with clear, almost piercing eyes. He did not enjoy robust health and was of a studious disposition. He was well-disciplined and he showed great respect and affection for his parents, both of whom shared in his education. In his home, like many burger-class homes of the time, high moral standards, solidity, industry, sobriety, frugality, orderliness and piety prevailed under his father's stiff but kindly eye. Unfortunately, Samuel's boyhood was marred by the hardship, danger, curfews and restricted travel which affected the whole community throughout the Seven-Year War 
from 1756 to 1763. For this reason, Samuel's boyhood was also punctuated by periods of menial work to supplement the family's income. Samuel's father and mother, being of limited means, gave him his early education themselves. Although he had not studied science and lacked a broad general education, Christian Gottfried gave his son a sound grounding coupled with the highest standards of behaviour. In February 1762, when only six years old, Samuel suffered the loss of his elder brother, Karl Gerard, who died at the age of seven years old. The cause of death was not recorded. Although at such a tender age, young Samuel's grief was short-lived as becoming the eldest surviving son of the family was to give him extra responsibilities, not the least of which being the necessity to earn wages to help in support of his family. Inevitably, this interrupted his early education. Samuel attended the town elementary school in Mason until he was 15 years old. There were two schools in the town at that time, one being the old Latin town school and the other in which Samuel was later to begin serious study, the Prince's Grammar School. One teacher in particular, Magister Johann Müller, who taught Samuel Latin, Greek and German, had a particular influence in his studies. Realising that he was a pupil of exceptional ability, he gave Samuel extra tuition and a preference over the other pupils, and a mutual respect and admiration developed between them. At the age of 12, Samuel was entrusted by Johann Müller to teach younger boys the rudiments of Greek. Samuel himself was to relate later, Magister Müller loved me as his own child. I owe him a great debt of gratitude for an honesty and diligence few could equal him. Magister was the title used in Germany to signify a master of the arts and later a doctor of philosophy. Now, Johann Müller, whose protégé Samuel had become at the town school, was then appointed rector at Prince's Grammar School. And it was then that Samuel became a pupil of the Princess Grammar School in 1771 at the age of 16. Interestingly, the school's motto read, Sapere Odei, which means dare to be wise. And these words from the Roman poet and satirist Horace were to be used by Samuel many years later on the title page of the later editions of his most important work, The Organon of the Art of Healing. In his final term, in spring of 1775, Samuel wrote a dissertation in Latin, which was the custom at that time, entitled The Wonderful Construction of the Human Hand. The choice of subject demonstrated his inclination towards a career in the medical profession. As you'll hear in the rest of the story, as I'm reading from the book, uh, Samuel had seriously itchy feet. Now, <laughs> at age 20, he was excited and somewhat apprehensive and bade farewell to his family and took the mail coach to Leipzig, situated about 35 miles to the northeast of Mason. There he found himself accommodation and in Easter 1775 entered the University of Leipzig to study medicine. In the same month that Samuel became a university student, the first shots were fired at Lexington to mark the beginning of the War of American Independence. Samuel had arrived at Leipzig clasping a large cloth bag containing his spare clothes carefully folded by his mother, some paper, an assortment of quill pens and a purse containing 20 tailors given to him by his father. From this moment, he became self-supporting and remained fiercely independent for the rest of his life. During his undergraduate days, he maintained a meager subsistence by teaching German and French, undertaking translations from Greek and English into German for comparatively rich students, and through an anonymous benefactor in Mason, probably Magister Müller, he obtained free passes to lectures. Thus, he achieved his independence. It is not certain that he ever visited his home again, and he was rarely to visit his beloved Mason. During the winter months of 1775-76, to 76, Samuel worked in a single, sparsely furnished room where he almost froze on bitter cold days. 
At times he would make himself a broth in which he soaked dry bread to soften it and occasionally he would be invited to a student's eating house, which is kind of like a soup kitchen, when other boarders who normally used it were absent. Of some benefit to him at the time was his attention to his physical well-being through regular outdoor physical exercise to stand the strain of my mental exertion, he wrote. He eventually became quite frustrated because of the absence of any practical facilities for his studies in medicine, as no hospitals or clinic was available. And it was his frustration in particular which decided him to leave, leave Leipzig late in 1776 for Vienna. In his autobiography, he wrote, The inclination for the practical side of medicine, for which there was no institution in Leipzig, induced me to go to Vienna at my own expense. Thus, Samuel was to obtain the practical medical training which was denied him at Leipzig. In the light of subsequent events, however, he must have questioned if, only to himself at the time, the darkest side of contemporary medical practice with its bloodletting, leeches and nostrums, its lack of hygiene and its singular lack of compassion. His rebellion was in the embryo stage. Dr. Samuel Hahnemann set up his first practice in the small mining town of Hedstead in the summer of 1780. Copious withdrawal of blood by venous section, cupping or leeches was a regrettable feature of medical practice in the 18th and 19th centuries and to a limited extent even into the early part of the 20th century. For the treatment of cholera, for example, it must be four or five pounds, recorded Dr. Racer. If insufficient blood is drawn, Bischoff instructed, the patient is still in danger of contracting a serious chronic disease. Therefore, it is necessary to repeat venous section until the patient faints. Originally, an army surgeon, Brizot, was the senior professor at the military hospital of instruction in Paris from 1820 onwards. His theory that bloodletting was indispensable to healing was carried to ridiculous lengths and, like many of his contemporaries, he believed that failure to carry out venous action should be a punishable offence. In some hospitals, the annual expenditure on blood-sucking leeches actually exceeded the amount spent on medicines. A dozen or more leeches would be applied to the affected parts of the victim, sometimes as many as 60, and there they remained until their greedy, bloated bodies fell off. The breeding of leeches was a thriving trade in the 19th century. Yet other forms of body purging were then applied to the victims, massive enemas, violent laxatives or nauseating emetics to induce vomiting. These were the seeds of Hahnemann's discontent and subsequent rebellion. So after only nine months in Hedstead, Samuel Hahnemann departed for Dessau, the larger town of Dessau, 30 miles from Hedstead on the river Milde, near its junction with the Elbe, offered Hahnemann more scope for his intellectual leanings. He soon found a practice and again satisfied his insatiable desire for learning by studying mining technology. His interest arose from his exposure to this industry at Hedstead, and more importantly by studying chemistry. Hahnemann turned his attention to the exciting developments in the field of chemistry, and he was to become a skillful exponent in the years to come. Had he chosen chemistry rather than medicine for his career, undoubtedly he would have made a significant contribution in this field. The famed chemist Berzelius once remarked jocularly that Hahnemann would have made a great chemist had he not turned out a great quack. <laughs> the pharmacy was, traditionally, the morning rendezvous of the male population of the town where news and gossip would be exchanged, business would be negotiated and people introduced to one another. This social custom, which was particularly convenient for a young doctor wishing to establish a practice, together with his interest in chemistry, led Hahnemann to Hassler's Pharmacy in Dessau. The apothecary of that name, who managed the business, was the stepfather of a girl of 17 named Johanna Henriette Leopoldine Kuchler, with whom Hahnemann was soon to fall in love. Johanna was the daughter of the late Gotthard Heinrich Kuchler, who had died in 1769. 
the apothecary who had formerly managed the pharmacy, and Marta Sophie Kuchler, born in Dessau on 1st of January 1764. Johanna was a charming, fresh-faced girl with dark hair and large brown eyes, and it came as no surprise to their small circle of friends when her engagement to Samuel Hahnemann was announced. Samuel's impending marriage led him to accept a post, as he explained, at a fairly substantial salary as medical officer in Gommen, 40 miles north along the Elbe, near Magdeburg. Having arranged for the bans of marriage to be read, he left his fiancée in Dessau and took up his new post late in 1781. Gommen was, like Hedstedt, only a small town consisting mainly of one long, densely populated street. Hahnemann came to detest having to walk this long street, with the remainder of its inhabitants widely scattered throughout a rural area. He found the work most congenial, however, leaving him considerable leisure time to continue his study of chemistry. So much spare time, in fact, that he remarked that the town barely needed the services of a doctor. After a year of bachelor existence and having rented a small house in Gommen, he returned to Dessau and there, at St. John's Church, he married Joanna. So began the joys of home life for Hahnemann, with the love and companionship of Joanna, whom he later called affectionately Elise, which was to last for nearly 48 years. Joanna was also to share the hardship and the trials and tribulations of his turbulent career. In 1783, their first child was born, a daughter they named Henrietta, after her mother's second name. Hahnemann's first original medical essay was published in Leipzig in 1784. This essay, entitled Directions for Curing Old Sores and Ulcers, demonstrated his growing disenchantment with the contemporary medical practice. This essay also contained extensive references to the need for hygiene and recommendations for exercise and open air. In 1784, Hahnemann, his wife and young Henrietta had left Gobbin for Dresden. Their few personal possessions, carefully packed by Johanna, for the first of what was to be many times in the years ahead, accompanied them on the arduous hundred-mile journey southeast along the course of the Elbe. Why Samuel moved to Dresden is not clear. Probably the rural environment of Gommen did not s stimulate his, him intellectually nor offer opportunities for the advancement of his career. Joanna had by this time recognized the strange melancholic moods and apparent eccentricity and readily accepted Samuel's decision to move. Hahnemann's second child, a boy named Frederick, was born in Dresden on 30 November 1786. Hahnemann continued to study science, retaining his special love for chemistry and medicine, largely through the medium of translating books on these subjects, which almost incidentally, as far as he was concerned, provided him with a source of income. He made many friends, notably the medical officer of health for Dresden, Dr. Samuel Wagner, and the superintendent of the electoral library, Hofrak Adelung. Dr. Wagner, whom Hahnemann described as a model of unswerving uprightness, assisted him in his studies and introduced him to forensic medicine. The aging physician was, however, overworked and ailing, and when he fell ill, he recommended to the magistrates that Hahnemann should act as his locum tenens, to which they agreed. The post of medical officer of health carried varied duties, including inter alia, supervising the midwives and surgeons of the infirmary, treating the inmates of the military hospital, the workhouse, the orphanage, and the prisons submitting a medical report each month to the mayor on all these institutions, investigating suicides and carrying out autumns, keeping down venereal diseases and rendering reports on criminals. About the time Hahnemann's good friend and mentor Dr. Wagner died, Johanna gave birth to their second daughter, Wilhelmina. Like her brother and sister, she was frail at birth. She died when only 30 years old, about 1818, after having a son named Hermann. Pleased as her parents were at her birth, it placed further strain on Hahnemann's meager income. As it was, their diet consisted largely of sweet beer or milk, 
dried bread and gross and Joanna had taken to knitting as many of their clothes as she could. Each morning Hahnemann would leave their small rented home in the Silsgasse and apologies for any Germans listening to this. I'm sure I'm probably butchering these names. <laughs> Please forgive me. <laughs> and Hahnemann would cross the bridge to seek the comparative peace and quiet denied him by a young family at home of the electoral library. Here he could further his studies, continue with his translations and write his books and articles on chemistry and medicine. Heinemann wrote nine articles on chemistry and medicine during this period, all published in a contemporary journal, and a short book entitled Prejudice Against Heating with Coal and Ways of Improving This Fuel, published by Walter of Dresden. A hint of his growing conviction that remedies should be prescribed in high dilutions was given in his article, An Unusually Strong Remedy for Checking Putrefaction, published in 1788. The particular remedy mentioned was silver nitrate for the treatment of chronic sores in a solution of one part in 1000 with water. Hahnemann made an indirect contribution to chemistry in publishing a test for wine, which came to be officially adopted in Prussia and known as the Hahnemann wine test. The original test, the Württemberg wine test, had been in use for nearly a century for the detection of poisonous lead in wine arising from adulteration by unscrupulous wine merchants in order to sweeten it. The basis of the test was the precipitation of the sulfides in lead, mercury, copper and tin by the addition of a solution of hydrogen sulfide gas dissolved in water, a procedure widely used in modern qualitative inorganic chemical analysis. Again, he demonstrated his concern with adulteration and impurities, which in medicines he believed would lower their efficacy. So from 1789 to 1793, Hahnemann traveled quite a lot, as you'll hear in this next part of the book. So a few months after their arrival in Leipzig, the Hahnemann family increased to six in number with the birth of their third daughter, Amalie. Amalie, like all his daughters, was to receive great affection from her father, but she became his favorite. Hahnemann's literary inclinations were well served by Leipzig. He revived his associations with the university, which he had severed voluntary some 13 years before, when still an undergraduate, and he became a regular user of the city library. In the absence of a practice and with little prospect of a medical appointment in Leipzig, Hahnemann embarked upon a repetition of his esoterical life and work in Dresden. Study, research, translations and penning books and articles on chemistry and medicine. The arrival of their fourth daughter Caroline, who was delicate like the rest of their children, was an added burden in their struggle against poverty. As it was suggested he had done in Dresden, Hahnemann moved out of the city into the rural environment of Stotteritz, a southeastern suburb of Leipzig where he could live more cheaply and give his children the benefit of fresh country air. With no access to library facilities, he had no alternative but to work in the single room occupied by the whole family. To avoid the often noisy distractions of the children, most of his writing was done when they were asleep. Hahnemann's close friends in his later years reported that he would work by candlelight in a corner of the ill-heated room behind a curtain until 4 or 5 in the morning. At least Liszt left him free during the day to help Johanna with the chores, to play with the children and between their lessons to take Henrietta, who was now seven years old, and Frederick, now five, for walks in the fresh air. Writing soon after their move to Stotteritz, Hahnemann renewed his near-desperate situation philosophically. If I were single or had not five children, it would be different. But in any case, elsewhere my expenses would be heavier. Besides, I am my own master here. What I now earn, little as it is, it's more than suffices me. I cannot reckon on much income from practice. I am too conscientious to prolong illness or to make it appear more dangerous than it really is. A year later he returned to this theme in another letter from Stotteritz. It is impossible to live another year in this village. I cannot subsist on literature alone. 
Moreover, I have no suitable room for chemical work. I have to send for everything from the town by special messengers except dry bread. I should have taken a house in Leipzig long ago had not famine, unhealthy air and high rents driven me out of the town for the sake of my sickly children. Now that they are sturdy and strong, should I shut them up in the town atmosphere of, Le of Leipzig with all its expenses? Life there means almost unsurmountable hardships, especially with a crowd of five small children. Now I know that my daily bread is assured by my writing, but I have nothing to spare. I have entirely given up my practice for the past year because it cost me more than it brought in. I want a place where I can live quietly and privately and yet can enlarge my knowledge as a scholar, surrounded by good people and able to bring up my children straight and sensibly. Hahnemann increased his writing activities further still. Urged on by the increasing needs of his family and perhaps by an innate sense of destiny, his output was even more prodigious than at Dresden. His two medical works and five chemical works were of particular significance. The first volume of The Friend of Health is worthy of special mention. In the introduction to the book, he counseled public hygiene, which was to be a continuing theme. He protested against the prejudice, opinion and practices of his med medical colleagues, another continuing theme in his future writings, and he protested against air pollution. In this connection, drawing upon his experience with his own family, he drew attention to the effects of town life and the upbringing of children. Fresh air, sensible diet, exercise and free movement are, as a general rule, always the preliminary conditions of well-being, he wrote. These comments may seem obvious to us today, but measured against the living conditions and medical opinion of his day, Hahnemann was clearly ahead of his time. His eight translations from English, French and Italian into German included a work of considerable significance, a treatise on Materia Medica by Dr. William Cullen. Dr. Cullen was a leading teacher, chemist and physician in Edinburgh and was considered to be an authority on medicinal substances. The special interest in this book lay not in Hahnemann's accurate translations but in his annotations which showed he had succumbed to the temptation to experiment with one particular drug, Cinchona Bark, on himself. Cinchona or Peruvian Bark had been used by the indigenous na natives of South America for the treatment of malaria and it had been brought to Europe by missionaries. Dr. Cullen stated, erroneously in Hahnemann's view, that his action depended on its tonic effects on the stomach. For the first time, Hahnemann recorded the effects of a medicine administered to a healthy person. This proving of the drug was critical, and it foreshadowed his enunciation of one of the first principles of his new method of treatment, homeopathy. A footnote by Hahnemann in the translation on the question of the efficacy of cinchona bark as a tonic for the stomach read. By combining the strong bitters and the strongest astringents, we can obtain a compound which, in small doses, possesses much more of both these properties than cinchona bark, and yet no fever specific can be made for such a compound. The undiscovered principle of the effect of cinchona bark is not easy to find. Let us consider substances which produce some kind of fever. I took for several days as an experiment four drams of china, another name for cinchona, twice daily. My feet and fingertips, etc., at first became cold. I became languid and drowsy, then my heart began to palpitate. My pulse became quick and hard, and intolerable anxiety and trembling, prostration in all the limbs, pulsation in the head, redness of cheeks, thirst briefly. These were all the symptoms usually associated with intermittent fever, all made their appearance. These symptoms lasted from two to three hours every time and recurred only when I repeated the dose. I discontinued the medicines and I was once again in good health. In another note he recorded, Peruvian or cinchona bark, which is used as a remedy for intermittent fever, acts because it can produce symptoms similar to those of intermittent fever in healthy people. 
Samuel was once again on the move and arrived with his family in Gotha, the capital of the Principality, about 150 miles southwest of Leipzig in the spring of 1792. He had taken up temporary residence there while he was preparing to move on to Georgenthal to take up his new post. And here, Hahnemann became the manager of the Asylum for the Insane. Hahnemann's humanitarian principles caused him to reject the cruel treatments of the day. His essay on his own compassionate approach summarized his attitude. I never allow any insane person to be punished by blows or other painful bodily chastisement, because there can be no punishment where there is no responsibility, and because these patients deserve only pity, and are made worse and not better by such rough treatment. The physician in charge of such unhappy people must have an attitude which inspires respect, but also creates confidence. Their outbreaks of unreasonable anger should only arouse his sympathy for their pitiful state. Heinemann had written on his children's daily routine in his handbook for mothers. They rose at sunrise and were dressed in loose, comfortable clothes and allowed to get plenty of exercise in the fresh air, running around bareheaded and sometimes barefoot. They were encouraged not to be lazy and to train their senses and were helped to overcome their fear of darkness. He taught them to be polite, not to lie and to control their anger. They were not allowed to form bad habits and he insisted on regular eating and sleeping. The children were put to bed on hard beds at sunset. Hahnemann was now 38 years old. He believed in those things which today are accepted without question. The value of proper diet, cleanliness and personal hygiene, of exercise and fresh air. He believed the hospitals were inadequate, poorly staffed, filthy and insanitary and his heart cried out for the plight of the unfortunate inmates of the workhouses, asylums and institutions. He despised the pharmacists whom he considered to be corrupt with their extortionate charges and the doubtful quality of their medicines. His idealism had caused him to refuse fees where he believed his treatment was inadequate or where his patients could not afford to pay, bringing privation to himself and his family. He was instinctively seeking a solution and to spread the knowledge to his fellow men. He believed that the answer to the cure of diseases and relief of suffering lay in nature itself and that God had provided, but where and how? An article written by Hahnemann in Molschgelben, I'm sorry again for that pronunciation, <laughs> but not published until 1795, described his treatment of a number of children in the village for a disease known as milk scab. He isolated his own children as he thought the disease was infectious and successfully treated those afflicted by the application of a solution of sulfurous, powdered oyster shell fused with sulfur to the sores. He mentioned that his own children, isolated as they were and doubtless much stronger from their comparatively affluent period in Georgenthal, enjoyed perfect health. Johanna had been pregnant since leaving Georgenthal and after a difficult confinement she gave birth to their second son, Ernest, on 27 February 1794. In the spring of 1794 the Harlem family were on the move again. This time the destination was the health resort of Pyrmont, nearly a hundred miles northward. In the early evening, when the coach was in the vicinity of the village of Mulhausen, disaster struck the family. With Hahnemann and Johanna and the six children packed inside the coach, the driver had whipped the four horses to gallop at excessive speed, causing the coach to lurch and sway violently behind them, until finally it swung outward on a sharp bend where the road cut into a steep bank and overturned. With the wheels spinning above, the coach dragged to a halt in a cloud of dust with the family in complete disarray and trapped inside. The leg of one of his daughters was fractured. Hahnemann had a gash on the forehead but the baby Ernest, who has been in his mother's arms, revealed head injuries and went into a coma. The infant Ernest had suffered through the driver's maniacal behaviour, for he died a few days later at less than three months old. When they had recovered sufficiently, the family continued the journey to Gottingen, where they stayed for a short while. 
Later that same year, they were living in Brunswick and another daughter, Frederica, had been born with a stillborn twin sister. Records of Heinemann's life in Koningslitter are almost non-existent. According to unconfirmed reports, his growing reputation as a doctor began to draw patients from far and wide, but many were attracted by the knowledge that he did not charge for the medicines which he produced himself, thus bypassing the apothecaries. The doctors in Koningslitter, envious of his rising fame, mounted a vicious campaign against the itinerant interloper in their midst and incited the apothecaries to bring an action against him for dispensing his own medicines. As a result, Heinemann was forbidden to prepare his own medicines and he was, once again, faced with the necessity to charge his patients for medicines produced by the corrupt apothecaries in whom he had no faith. Of great significance was Heinemann's essay on a new principle for ascertaining the curative powers of drugs and some examinations of previous principles, published in Hufflin's journal in 1796. He outlined three existing methods of healing. If I mistake not, practical medicine has devised three ways of applying remedies for the re relief of disorders of the human body. The first method, that of removing or destroying the causes of the malady, that is preventative treatment. The second and most common, contraria contraris, that is, healing by opposites, such as the palliative treatment of constipation by laxatives. The third method he described, used only by the more conscientious physicians of deeper insight, aims at achieving a cure by specific means. One should apply in the disease to be healed, particularly if chronic, that remedy which is liable to stimulate another artificially produced disease as similar as possible, and the former will be healed, similia similibus, like with like. That is, in order to cure disease, we must seek medicines that can excite similar symptoms in the healthy human body. 1796 is the year of the birth of homeopathy. In the same year, Dr. Edward Jenner, who practiced in Gloucestershire, had inoculated a young boy with cowpox against smallpox and thus demonstrated the principle of immunization. This idea had already been considered by Hahnemann, but he had rejected it because of the risk involved in introducing matter derived from disease. The word homeopathy was, was devised by Hahnemann some years later from the Greek word homeos meaning similar and pathos meaning disease, or the treatment of like with like. The word homeopathic appeared for the first time in his essay, Indications of the Homeopathic Employment of Medicines in Ordinary Practice, published in Hufflin's Journal in 1807. At this juncture, it might be appropriate to consider the contribution of Hahnemann's loving and loyal wife, Johanna, on whom he relied for his physical, mental and spiritual support during his long travels. She was now rather plump and her round motherly face was etched with lines from the worry, toil and privation she had experienced over the years. She had borne eight children, one stillborn and another killed, and raised the others through their formative years, coping with their problems prudently and unselfishly. Henrietta was now 21, Frederick 18, Wilhelmina 16, Amelie 15, Caroline 13 and Frederica 9 years old. She was yet to bear three more children. Joanna had moved with her family and their positions at least 20 times in 20 years. Even by today's standards, this would have been a staggering feat, but measured against the standards of the late 18th century, with its wartime dangers, poverty and famine, primitive sanitary arrangements, inadequate heating and arduous travel, her achievement was indeed remarkable. Yet throughout all the time she had coped with the perverse moods of her husband, the frustrated, unsettled, idiosyncratic genius Samuel Hahnemann. So lovely listeners, I have only made it through about a third of the book, just cherry picking some bits of information that I thought you might find helpful. 
there is still so much incredible information in this book it is really just getting started where I have just left off so you will be finding out lots of information about how Samuel Hahnemann started using homeopathy more and more and how his thoughts changed over the years and um, how he was still chased from town to town because the pharmacies at the time were not happy that he was making his own medicines and that people were flocking to him wherever he went. He had a university post eventually where he lectured quite a lot and he started to really gather a following of people who were practicing homeopathy. Tomorrow's episode will be with the lovely uh, Barbara Roberts from New Zealand and she's going to be sharing some bits from a book with you which is to do with the love story between Samuel Hahnemann and his second wife and that is as actually incredibly interesting so I'm sure you're going to love tomorrow's episode. I just have to finish off uh, by saying how much homeopathy has meant to me in my life and um, being a fellow Aries, my birthday is the 4th of April and Samuel Hahnemann is the 10th of April. There's certainly some parts of his personality that I definitely identify with. I don't know if it's an Aries thing, but um, yeah, he was definitely a very passionate man and you could see that fire coming out of him every now and again when you read some of his writings and he was obviously very passionate about getting homeopathy to the world and I can absolutely identify with that. I mean, we're sitting on this incredible powerful yet gentle safe and effective natural medicine which we can use to heal the whole world at a fraction of the cost of the medicines that are currently being used homeopathy is the medicine for today it's the medicine for the future it's energy medicine it's quantum medicine it's uh, something that we can't quite grasp and get our heads around at the moment but we will get there the better equipment that we get and the better experiments that we're able to do to figure out exactly how it is that homeopathy works so thank you for listening i hope that you're inspired by this incredible man and um, yeah get a copy of this book and have a read and find out a little bit more about samuel Hahnemann. and i hope you enjoy this week we're going to be releasing a podcast episode every single day and uh, definitely not something i'm going to be making a habit of because this has been an insane amount of work but <laughs> i want to thank you for your time and listening i really appreciate it and please share this with your family and friends thank Thank you so much.